Good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Evan. I'm delighted that you're here. Anybody else happy to be in the house today? I'm glad to hear it. I love hearing, we're going to hear from Romans 8 a little bit more today, but earlier than what we just read, so I invite you to find Romans 8 right now. And two things struck me as we were opening in worship this morning. Uh, One is that last song, Breathe. I know for me, that's been an important song. That was a at a pivotal moment in my life, that was one of the popular songs that we sang quite a lot. And so to hear it and sing it today, not only as an act of worship now, but I remember what God has done in my life. And isn't it good when we have songs like that in our lives? Some of us have songs that maybe I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't like as much as you would, maybe don't like that one, but we like this, these uh, songs from our history. We need them all. We, and, and we need them to carry us and remind us of what God has done. And we might have different flavors in that, but we also need to continue to give them to the future generations. Amen? That's what we need to do. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to have those markers in our lives. So I was really thankful for that. I also, I don't know about you, but just keep this in context as we read today, but creation groans for its redemption. And we too are in a world of brokenness, and we're going to hear about that this morning as we read through. But don't you just long for when God makes things right? I mean, it almost brings, it brought me to tears this morning as we were playing that, that God is going to make things right in this world of injustice, but that starts with us. And we're going to hear that this morning. So let's turn to Romans 8. We're going to read verse 14, then we'll read 15 and 16 a little bit later, verse 17. If you're following, you can stay in Romans uh, right there in 8, and you'll be pretty much on track. I'm going to throw in a verse from Ephesians, but you'll be fine. Verse 14, Romans 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. That's a great truth and a promise right there. It asks, of course, two questions if you think about it. What is a child of God? What does it mean to be children of God? And what does it look like to be led by the Spirit? Let's start with the first, and that's, these are going to carry us through, but I want to give short thoughts on these and then carry us through with more from Romans as we go on. There is an assumption that exists in the culture that we live in, and sometimes it bleeds into the church quite easily, that simply by existence we are children of God. I've heard it referenced recently in cultural context that that's the case. And and I understand how people get there. We're created in the image of God that is true. We heard it last week in the book of James. We're created in the image of God. But that does not mean by default that we actually are children of God in the way that we're hearing it within Scripture. That is, those who are saved and brought into the family. We hear a much more specific way that that's applied today. At minimum, we could look at that and say, well, maybe that applies to those who are part of God's covenant people in the Old Testament, that they are children of God. And indeed, there is some reference in that way throughout the Old Testament. But Paul himself points out in Romans 5, if you go and read it, that in fact it is faith by which we claim being part of the family. It is not by default. The law fulfills the covenant for Jew and Gentile alike, and we are brought in by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, and we claim that by faith. That's how we become children of God. Second thing, what does it look like to be led by the Spirit? This is really where we're going for the rest of the next couple months. In this summer, we're going to hear a lot of New Testament passages that will talk about what it means to be led by the Spirit, and ultimately, we're, we're talking about putting on the mind of Christ. To, to be led by the Spirit looks like being generous, Versus being stingy or withholding or hoarding. To be led by the Spirit looks like somebody who's forgiving. Rather than somebody who's grudge holding. 
or means spirited. Being led by the Spirit looks like somebody who's kind rather than rude. Yes, we speak the truth, but we speak the truth with grace. Being led by the Spirit means being a people who bear one another's burdens together and even do that for people who aren't yet followers of Christ. Being led by the Spirit means not living a me faith, but living a God-centered faith. Knowing God, knowing God's will, caring about what God's will is. And that looks like producing good fruit. Being led by the Spirit means that good fruit is produced. And that means sharing Jesus Christ as well. That's not an add-on to our faith. That is the core of our faith. That Jesus came to heal and right the wrong that's in the world. He touched and healed. He came and said, my kingdom is coming. This is what it looks like. And we, when we become children of God and follow him and are led by the Spirit, are part of that kingdom and are supposed to take that kingdom into the world and say, guess what? He's undoing all that junk in the world and he's undoing it through us. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. Following Jesus, it turns out, means thinking like Jesus. That's what we're going to unpack this summer. Lots of people think Jesus is all right. They think he's a good buddy. They think he's a good moral teacher, whatever it might be. But when we follow Christ, transformation must occur. Not simply some outer changes. Our minds think different. They begin to think like Christ as we experience that transformation led by the Spirit. Disciples of Jesus set their hearts and minds on things above on the things of Christ, and those have real-world implications. Let's go to verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. As I said, we're not children by default. Paul will clarify this in Ephesians, and we'll look at that right now, Ephesians 1, 4 through 7. It'll come up on the screen. He says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship. It's the same language Paul's using back in the passage we just saw. Adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We're adopted into the family of God only through Jesus Christ. That's how it works. That's how we become children of God. There is no other way. This week, I texted a friend about something important. I wanted to know, because I am comic book deficient, I didn't read them much growing up, was Superman on his home planet of Krypton simply man, and actually boy at that point, and not super, and only became super on this planet? Now, those of you who are real comic book people, I know this is DC, uh, if you're into that, um, you're going to be like, what an elementary question. But, indeed, 
uh, my friend responded back that he was delighted that I wanted to know more and, and liked the fact that I was curious. Um, it turns out Superman was normal, as everybody was on Krypton, because of the red sun of Krypton, and when he comes to Earth, the yellow sun of Earth makes him super. And he gets stronger over time because of the yellow sun of Earth. Okay, I didn't know this because I'm not a comic book person. Now, I don't want to take that too far, but it relates to what we're talking about when it comes to transformation. We have to be transformed by the Spirit of God as we become part of his family. Transformation is required to live in God's family as his children. Superman becomes something different, simply put. And so do we, through the Holy Spirit, as we're led by the Holy Spirit. John Chris Austin, writing in the mid-300s, says, For as believers, we do not merely live in the Spirit, we are led by Him as well, which is exactly what Paul says here. We are led by Him as well. The Spirit is meant to have the same power over us as a pilot over his ship or a charioteer over his horses. And their transformation begins to occur within us as we live and are led by the Spirit. But we might want to ask the question as we're thinking about this, what happens when we try to act like God's children without being led by the Spirit? And I think we can probably think of a lot of examples where we've seen that in the world. Bad things happen. So let me give you another comic book image of one that I do know, Batman. So we've talked Superman, Batman, we're in the same world. If you notice, Superman, we said, something changes because of the yellow sun. So he's stronger. He can do things uh, faster than a speeding bullet, all that business. Batman is just a human with a really dark backstory and uses a lot of gadgets, but at the end of the day, he's human. At best, when we try and look like we're following Jesus and living by the Spirit, but we actually aren't living by the Spirit, we're trying to do a lot of things to supplement. And at its best, the results are this. We, get to the, we do a lot of good things in this life, and we get to the end, and we hear what I think would be the most terrifying words from Jesus. You did all these good things in my name, never knew you. That's when we look like it, when we say, I like all the stuff about doing good, but, not, but don't actually take Jesus in, and don't actually let the Holy Spirit do anything in us, and don't actually let that salvation work through us. That's the best case scenario. Worst case scenario is we could uh, con consider a lot. We've probably heard or experienced those. I was reminded of some of those over the last couple weeks, you know, both the, the issues uh, of abuse that happened in the Roman Catholic Church among priests over decades, and I was reminded as well of what the report that came out from the Southern Baptist Convention over the last two weeks, uh, chronicling some abuse among staff and in some cases pastors, which of course I want to recognize that the Southern Baptist Convention has a ton of tremendously good pastors. It's not uh, an issue for everyone, but it obviously existed and lived and caused tremendous damage. And in some cases, you can read the stories and see that these were people who looked like they were living by the Spirit because they talked that way, but didn't act like it in the end. The Spirit wasn't really living in them. I do want to point out, I think this is a, a good point, it just steps aside for a moment, but I do want to point out that that 
I stand by being a part of a denomination that's a denomination um, because we actually have teeth in our structure so that if something happens, it gets contained and we try and prevent those things from happening in the first place. And I just wanted to point out a couple of things. We've tried very hard in our denomination to make sure that we make sure our pastors are healthy and we have grants that help do that and try and do that at regular intervals through our conferences and other independent study projects. We have teeth in our structure because if something, if I need care as a pastor uh, or another covenant pastor does, it's not just on our congregation, it's on the larger body of Christ. We try and contain these things so that prevent them in the first place, contain them if they happen. And third, just as a simple point, like next week I'm going on a retreat with our Midwest Conference care team because I'm part of a team of pastors that try and care for other pastors to make sure we don't get into trouble and into these situations. We can do things, but when it comes down to it, even if you put in all of those things, Paul says the spirit is sometimes willing, but the flesh is weak. And we can sometimes give into temptation, but we have to recognize two realities of living life in the spirit. It's not enough to act like Jesus. We need to become like Jesus. We need to be conformed to his image by the transformation of the Holy Spirit in us. And secondly, and I think this is important to point out here, Paul's writing to a church, as he does in pretty much all of his letters, you can't walk this alone. I'm told this at regular intervals as a pastor, you can't be a pastor and be disconnected from other pastors and expect to make it in ministry. But I would say the same to us as believers. COVID-19, I think, deceived us at times on many things, but too many Christians and folks believe that they can do this Christian walk alone without the body of Christ as a result of that. Guess what? You can't. Jesus died for his church. And when we say yes to Jesus, we become part of that family. And this is part of that family, the gathering together. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak quite often. We encourage one another in that transformation process of being led by the Spirit so that we don't succumb to temptation along the way. We need each other to walk by the Spirit. If we're going to be led by the Spirit, we need to become children of God in the first place. Paul uses imagery of slaves to sons here. Slavery in the ancient world it was a little bit different than what we experienced in our part of the world, but slavery is still slavery when you get down to it. One human owning another, wrong in any context. Limited freedom. What the connection between the slavery and the child is, even in the, the language, Paul's writing in Greek, in the Greek language, the, the language, and he doesn't use this specific word, but it's, it's hidden in the, behind there. The language, one of the words for child can also be used for slave in, in the sense of status. Because children in the ancient Roman world had the same status as a slave up until the age of maturity. Now, they might have different value in the home, but culturally, they had the same rights and values, which is limited as slaves. But Paul says, guess what? You become sons and daughters by adoption. Something different happens, and Paul uses technical language to point out when somebody was adopted as a son, they got the full rights, the full inheritance, the full part of being a family. That's the same thing that happens today. It was even stronger in the ancient Roman world, even though not biologically born from that. Paul says that's what happens to us when we say yes to Jesus, we become part of the family of God, and God says, you're mine. You're my son, my daughter, with all the full rights that go with that and all the benefits. And I want to point out, 
that it's, I think this can be very powerful language for us as we think through those who are far from God today. A number of years ago, Stephanie and I, my wife and I, were going through the foster care process and training. Ultimately, through prayer, we decided it wasn't the right time, but um, the training was really valuable, both for us as families. We're still connected with plenty of uh, foster and adoptive families. Train is very valuable for me as a pastor as well. What was really interesting about that time is that as we're going through the training, I got a call from somebody whose children had just been removed from the home, who then is calling cold call to a church. People do this all the time. Just so you know what I do during the week, I don't take calls like that all the time. We do get a lot of those calls. People who don't go to church but want a pastor, they call. They want some counsel. Okay, we'll talk through. Um, And she was trying to figure out, what do I do now? And so for the next year plus, I randomly called in. She called in, met, we talked about what happens next. And I got to also experience on the other side what was happening with the kids. And the end of the story is really wonderful for them and new families. They actually had a very good foster care journey, even though it was difficult at the beginning. And the mom, by the way, has a good ending to her story. One of the things that we learned that's been valuable to me as I worked with that and other situations is that no matter how bad the situation was that a child was removed from, you never, ever, ever badmouth biological parents because they're still parents. Because that biological connection is so strong. Even if it was the hardest situation in the world, awful, abusive, neglectful, there's still mom and dad in some way. That, that physical connection is never really lost, and it's so strong. And I would suggest to you that there you have a portrait of this child of God being made in the image of God language where we struggle with that in our culture, that those who are spiritually hungry, spiritually searching, looking around, have been estranged from their heavenly father, their creator, and they're longing for it, but they need our help to get there and be adopted into his family. They long for it the same way those who have been estranged from their own physical families long for that connection. They were created for it. And as we consider this, I want us to recognize that that's part of our job as believers to help those who are lost become adopted into the family of God if we were adopted into the family of God or as we were. Being children of God means bearing the family name, as it turns out. So we we become children of God through Christ. We're led by the Spirit. Being children of God means bearing the family name. If you look back at the Ten Commandments, the third commandment, do not use the name of the Lord in vain. We often simply interpret that to mean don't use Jesus as a four-letter word. Yeah, that's what it means, but it means a whole lot more than that. It actually means that if we're God's family, we act like it. We represent him everywhere that we go. Just like uh, in our own families, we can think of our own character traits and think, well, that comes from this side of the family. That comes from that side of the family. Our our love for desserts in our family. It's a Westberg trait, we say. You know, that kind of thing. Do we look like the family or not? That's what the third commandment is asking. Do we recognize, uh, do people recognize us as the family of God, as followers of Jesus Christ? Or is that somehow hidden? And the way we sometimes cover that, and and it can be... um, the sort of the fruit of not quite transformation is if we're not quite transformed or not being led by the Spirit, sometimes we can make excuses for God when we're out in the world. 
as if we get embarrassed by God. I wouldn't have included that part of the Bible. I don't like that part either. Or we pick and choose a little too easily those parts of the Bible we're going to follow and not follow. We find ways to be partially conformed to Christ and mostly conformed to the world. One of the ways I I often see this actually as a pastor is at funerals. When people will be conformed to the image of the world, basically, but they come in and they hear Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and act as if they actually live that out, but they don't. We need the mind of Christ, not the mind of the world, if we're being transformed and led by the Spirit of Christ. And if Jesus hasn't freed you from the bondage of sin, guess what? You're not a child of God. But that freedom is being offered. Romans 8, 13, so just before our key passage, Paul writes, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. There will be tough days for people who follow Christ. For people who are being led by the Spirit, we're, in fact, told by Jesus, it's going to be tough sometimes. All the more reason to be led by the Spirit especially on those days when it's tough. Craig Keener, scholar and uh, author, writes, the issue here, just so we're clear, the issue is not that a person of the Spirit might sometimes succumb to fleshly temptation. Rather, the issue is that a person either had God's Spirit in them, hence lived a life oriented towards God, or a person had nothing more than themselves to depend on, hence could only live according to the flesh. The unfortunate reality is we will sin. Even when we're being led by the Spirit, sometimes we'll ignore the Spirit. But are we moving in a Godward direction? Have we been? Are we on the track of redemption? Is Jesus' blood actively washing away our sin or not? Are we being transformed? Are we just looking like it? In Romans 3.23, Paul points out this reality about sin. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. The idea of atonement that's brought up there is putting at one the broken relationship that we have with God. We need not go into the depths of that, but I do think it's important to recognize when we live under the bondage of sin, we're also living under the bondage of the one who causes that around the world. There are a lot of different ways that Scripture talks about that idea of atonement, what Jesus did on the cross, and how it puts together the broken relationship with us in Christ, whether it's the law, whether it's uh, uh, redemption in the sense of a purchase, whether we have slavery imagery, uh, bought your freedom, those kinds of things. Classically, in the early church for a long time, uh, they talked about the idea that the, the good that God had created was spoiled by the serpent from the very beginning. And because of that, our lot is separation and death. Separation from God, ultimately death, and separation from him eternally. Jesus' death, and, and we live under the leadership of the evil one is the distinctive point, they said. The devil and his minions run around the world, making a mess of things, 
and yanking us into that. Jesus' death and resurrection are victorious over sin, death, and the devil. That's what was proclaimed in the early church quite clearly, quite often. And it gives us new life in Christ and a renewed relationship with God when we say yes to Jesus, when we become sons and daughters of the King, and when we are led by the Spirit. And interestingly, we still proclaim that when we do things like baptism. Baptism is welcoming into the family of God is what it is. And I, I want to, we're going to close here, and I want to end with a, a challenge to think about uh, your baptismal vows when you were baptized in life, and if you haven't, to consider that. But I'm, I'm just going to give you two of the four questions we ask when we baptize, because I think they tell us about life in the Spirit and challenge us to consider what that looks like right now in our own lives. The first is the obvious question we ask, do you now desire to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Otherwise, we wouldn't be there if we didn't want to do that. Obviously, yes is the answer to that if you're going to be baptized. But the second question that we ask, it's been asked in various ways throughout Christian history, but basically it's always been there. Proclaiming this covenant with Jesus Christ, do you renounce all the powers of evil and declare your opposition to a way of life in contradiction to the gospel? I think this is a really important question if we're talking about being led by the Spirit and life in the Spirit. Are you on the track of being transformed and conformed to the image of Christ? Or are you on the other track? Because there really aren't more than two tracks when it comes down to it. Which track are you on? It's a good question. Paul finally writes in Romans 8, 17, he says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. There's a lot to unpack there, and we're going to unpack none of it, except to say this. That inheritance that we get through Jesus Christ begins now. That's what we're talking about the rest of the summer. That, that we, being led by the Spirit, it has real-world effects. We begin to experience that. But two things we've already seen of the benefits that come with that inheritance are that we have direction by God through the Holy Spirit in this life to know what to do and what not to do. To live a life that is gospel-driven and gospel-centered towards Christ, not away from Him. And we're also given this close relationship through that adoption with Abba Father. It's just language, Daddy. Closer and closer relationship with our Heavenly Father in a way that we couldn't have had before any redemption took place. Before saying yes to Jesus Christ. And so I have just two simple thoughts, challenges, whatever you want to call them this week, or responses. The first is this. As you begin every prayer this week, pray Abba, Father, as the beginning of your prayer. And see what it does with your relationship with your Heavenly Father. And second is this. We saw that, that passage up there about uh, that we renounce all powers of evil and declare opposition to a way of life in contradiction to the gospel. I challenge you to take time to consider how true that is in your own life if you've been baptized. And if you haven't been baptized, then let's talk. If you're ready for that point, let's talk and let's consider what that would look like.